0: at that morning church good morning. that worship today right That was good i just feel the someone said to me after um last week's message of course we're in luke's gospel here and racing toward the end but someone mentioned to me this past week that they could feel the tension in the sermons just rising as we head toward um the crucifixion and the climax of the whole story and um And in fact, what I want to do is just kind of, before we get into today's message, just lay out where we're going to go over the next uh, six messages. And I I got a a little graphic here for us to kind of track with this. Um, April 7th, next week, uh, we'll be in the last part of Luke 22. We're going to look at Peter's denial, Jesus before uh, the council, and then his trial in front of Pontius Pilate and uh, Herod as well on April 14th. And then... um, I'll be preaching three times. You can pray for me three times in a space of eight days um, because we'll do a Sunday. Then uh, we're going to do one of the messages in the Luke series on Good Friday, the crucifixion. And then I'll do the resurrection on Easter Sunday. And then two more messages in Luke 24 uh, at the end to uh, finish everything up. Jesus on the Emmaus Road, which is just every time I read that story, it just catches me, doesn't it? I, I imagine myself in the story walking with Jesus and not knowing it's him. And then when the realization comes, it's just an awesome story. And then the ascension in Luke uh, 24. And um, it's going to be awesome after six years in this book, um, off and on over those six years, to finally be bringing that in for a landing on May the 5th. And uh, if you've missed any of the 90 messages in Luke's gospel, how many people have missed some of the 90 messages? Yeah. Okay, well, they're all available online, so you all can catch up. So just go online, you can go to harvestberry.ca slash teaching, I'm not even kidding, and, uh, uh, or sermons I think, yeah, and then search, uh, you can search by title, just search Gospel of Luke and you'll see all six uh, parts there and you can check that all out and, and, and catch up, there, there's going to be a test on May 12th, <laughs> what? comprehensive test on, oh. on May the 12th, everybody good? All right, not really, all right, ready for this week? Ready for this message? It's called The Power of Darkness. And uh, maybe you don't need any convincing um, at all that there's evil around us and that that evil is intent, in fact, on our uh, destruction. We see evil in others. We see it in society. We see it in world events. Uh, We can get personal here, and in the interest of transparency, which is something that we uh, do seek to achieve here, um, there's darkness in our own hearts, isn't there? There's darkness in our own hearts. I thought about Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The Lord is speaking to the nation of Israel, and he's he's downloading prophecies to them. And he says to them, the heart is deceitful, and uh, deceitful above all things. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who Who could know their own heart? Even for the Christian, it's an ongoing battle to grow in holiness, to allow the gospel to saturate our lives and to transform us. Even for the Christian, it is a heart that wavers back and forth between sin and holiness. Sometimes we give in to the darkness and sometimes we resist it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Does that sound like you? I mean, that sounds like a lot like me. And I hope you would be honest enough, transparent enough to admit that that would be you as well. So, once again, we come to a passage that we desperately need to hear a message that is designed just for me, just for you. How can I identify the power of darkness around me? so as to resist it. And that's what we're going to see in this encounter in the Garden of Gethsemane, starting at verse 47. This is Luke 22, 47 to 53. I'll read the text. We'll pray, ask God's blessing on our time together, and then we'll get after this, how we can identify the power of darkness around us. Luke twenty-two forty-seven. While While Jesus was still speaking, there came a crowd he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Let's pray. Father, it just seems a little extra overwhelming whenever we uh, get the word open and, and have to look at something like this where we're talking mostly about darkness and evil in the world. And so we need your Holy Spirit to come right now and we need the light of Jesus Christ in this room. We need the light to illuminate every heart and every mind to understand your word. Father, we need you to push back, push back the darkness to subdue the evil. Father, to work in an extraordinary way in this room right now so that we will be convinced and convicted of these truths. And we would gladly lay down our lives to conform to your will. So, Father, help us to hear, to understand, and to apply of what we hear today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You agree with that prayer? Amen. All right. How can I identify the power of darkness uh, around me? First, uh, darkness uh, disguises itself as good. Uh, darkness disguises itself as good. Darkness will uh, oftentimes be uh, overt and obvious. There's plenty of examples of that. But in uh, our rational Western culture uh, that we live in, where everything needs to kind of click into a category and make sense the way Westerners think, it's more often than not true that evil presents itself covertly in ways that we don't necessarily see. It wears a mask of goodness, so that when we look at it we are persuaded or convinced rationally that this must be a good thing paul in fact said this is in second corinthians 11:14 satan disguises himself as an angel of light and that, in fact, is what we see at play in the passage. In verse 47, while he was still speaking, I mean, remember, all of chapter 22 is one episode. This is the fourth message in chapter 22, but it's, it's all the same. They were in the upper room. They shared the Passover. He inaugurated the Lord's table or communion with them. And then they've made their way to the garden and they're having this uh, time of prayer. And uh, he, he prays, they uh, slept, And the arrest is about to happen. And in the midst of him telling them something really important, guys, you need to stay awake. You need to pray that you're not going to fall into temptation. That's back in verse 46 from last week's message. In the midst of saying this to them, the text tells us while he was still speaking, while he was still saying that, you can just imagine that in the garden, in the darkness of the garden, he might have seen torches approaching and maybe heard The footsteps of this crowd that's now approaching the garden. And he's interrupted as he's telling them, exhorting them once again. You guys better pray that you don't fall into temptation. The verse continues to say there came a crowd. What I found remarkable in this passage is how at peace Jesus is. How in control of the situation. His time in prayer, he had uh, wrestled with the father over his fate he surrendered his will you remember the moment if it's possible lord take this cup from me let this cup of suffering pass from me let's find a different way to do this but then checking himself he he said um but not my will yours be done completely surrender to what the father wanted for him And having surrendered to the will of the Father, he was now resolved and he now had the strength to be guiding his followers. Now listen, if this wasn't a message on the power of darkness, this could be a message on the power of prayer. And how it prepares us for whatever eventuality is coming our way, that Jesus had spent that time in prayer, that Jesus had wrestled honestly bearing his heart to the father and then had completely surrendered his will to the father's put him in a place where he was strong and at peace and resolved no matter what we go through in life i'm just telling this is like a little side bonus message as we as we go along here no matter what we go through in life if we are preparing ourselves in prayer and if we are surrendered to the will of the father we will enter every trial with strength and resolve and peace It's guaranteed. So as Jesus is confidently approaching this, the man Judas, notice as the verse continues, the man Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Now Judas is using the customary Jewish form of greeting for a respected rabbi like Jesus uh, by giving him a kiss. Who would like to come up here and give me a respected rabbi kiss? Who would like to do that? Any? Brian Langford, you're too eager. No. <laughs> this would be similar to what Europeans do today. Westerners, we don't do this kind of thing. We're a little more standoffish about this. But if you go to Europe and you're greeting people, there's the kiss on both cheeks. Even if you go to Quebec, they'll do this. I always get into this when I visit my cousins in Montreal, and I never know which side to go to first. It gets a little awkward sometimes. It's very similar to that. It's, it's, it's respectful and it's, it's meant to communicate affection and love. In fact, the word kiss here, very interesting. Those of you who know any of the original language words, the Greek words for the New Testament might recognize this one. The word for kiss is the word phileo in Greek, which is um, also the word for love. It's the most common or second most common uh, use of uh, the word love in the New Testament. There's a couple of different words for love. But phileo is this, is this uh, passionate, um, uh, brotherly, affection-type love. And so this kiss is not just a perfunctory greeting. This is an expression, a gesture of love and cl- close friendship. Certainly not appropriate for betrayal. Or maybe, maybe it is. Remember my early Christian walk, I used to listen to uh, an artist, he's still singing today, Michael Card, very profound, very theological uh, lyrics uh, that he would write. And a lyric that just stuck with me from one of his songs was this, Only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain. For only a friend can come close enough to ever cause so much pain. The kiss was appropriate then. And some of you have known the sting and the pain of betrayal in your own lives. And Jesus knows all along here what Judas' intent is. He knows that this kiss is a means of betrayal. He knows that this is the way that Jesus will be identified to those who are arresting him. The kiss is not only disingenuous, it is actually malicious. It is evil disguised as good. Something good and pure and honoring is being used for evil. Now, this is uh, the point. Satan is often using this as a tactic to wrap a lie, wrap a lie in the truth. In order to make something that's evil sound good, he wraps a lie in the truth. For example, the love of God, which is an awesome thing. Amen? The love of God is an awesome thing. We are all here as a result of the love of God. Those of us who have been saved, it is because of the love of God. The blessings we have in our lives are the result of the love of God. Jesus Christ came down to this earth because God so loved the world. But if saying God is love... Gives us an out for all kinds of sinful choices and erases any sense that God is holy and just, then really we're just falling into Satan's trap. God is love, therefore I can do whatever I want. God is love, so this lifestyle is acceptable. God loves everyone. He wouldn't condemn anyone. God is love, is the wrapper for a God who does not judge sin. It's a lie wrapped in the truth. We can't be fooled by this. Verse 48, but Jesus said to him, challenging him now, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Would you, would you wrap your evil in good? And Jesus, for his part, gently and lovingly reaches out to Judas again. And, and, and he's going to challenge this lost soul who he had chosen to be part of the twelve think carefully about what he's doing. Would you betray me with a kiss? You see, Jesus refuses to simply let the action happen without pointing out the error of it. And all of that to say, don't be fooled by this. A darkness often disguises itself as good. And we have to be discerning. Secondly, realize that darkness acts impulsively. When I was thinking of some words to describe our God, here's some things that I I thought of as I I thought about the entirety of Scriptures and how God works in the world and how God has even worked in my life and in this church. Here's some words that I wrote down. God is uh, measured, patient, methodical, God is deliberate. Would you not agree with those words that as you think about how God has worked through history, when you read Genesis and get all the way to Revelation and see the way God has carefully woven His will throughout all of redemption history, you just see that those words, just He's measured, He's patient, He's methodical, He's deliberate. Everything works out according to His plan. And by the way, those are all things that would be good for us to be as well. Satan, however motivates us to be the opposite of that. Here's what Satan wants us to be. Some words here, I'll give you four again. Satan wants us to be impetuous. Satan wants us to be rushed. Satan wants us to be reckless. And Satan wants us to be thoughtless. Now, by the way, Satan wants you to be all of those things. But can I tell you that Satan emulates God in the sense that Satan is measured? and patient, and methodical, and deliberate. Satan's tracking with God in those those categories, in those characteristics, but he wants us to be the opposite of these things. Verse 49, when those who were around him, talking about his disciples, saw what would follow okay, this gang has just come with swords and clubs and torches and they're about to arrest Jesus and they see what's going to go down. They said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Now you remember in the last message, there was this whole conversation. Jesus said to them, you know, if you don't have a sword, you should go ahead and sell your tunic and buy one. You're going to need it. And the whole thing was about just being prepared for what's coming. That, that, that they they're gonna be opposed and it's gonna be dangerous and they're gonna need that for protection along the way and they're gonna to have to take care of their own needs while they're on the road spreading the gospel. So there was this whole conversation about swords they presented to and Jesus said, that's enough, that'll do. So they asked the question now because the swords are still fresh in their mind. Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Now, what would Jesus have said If they had given him a chance to answer, what would Jesus have said? Shall we strike with the sword? No! No, No, don't strike with the sword. But before he had a chance to answer, what happens? Verse 50. One of them, one of them, I don't know what Luke and Peter had going on, but Luke doesn't mention that it's Peter, but we know it's Peter. (laughs) It's Peter. One of them, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Now, right here, you just understand, these fishermen are not going to defeat the Roman Empire if they can't do much more than lop off the ear of a servant of the high priest. Peter should have stuck to fishing. We all understand that because his aim wasn't very good. So these guys are demonstrating, they ask the question, but they're being impetuous, they're being impatient, they're being reckless, they're being thoughtless. Completely misunderstood what Jesus meant by the swords back in verse 36. At no point did Jesus ever suggest in any way during three years of of walking with him and learning from him and hearing his teaching, not once had he ever suggested in any way that the kingdom would come in a violent way. It was not about overthrowing the Jewish leadership or the Romans or anything like that at all. But once again, the disciples, and Peter's just doing this on behalf of all of them, they act impulsively. They wound this poor servant, Peter, and the disciples, who did not stay awake and pray. They did not do what Jesus modeled and what Jesus told them to do And so they were entirely unprepared for what happened. And Jesus said to him, verse 40, the latter part there, and in in, in verse 46, pray that you may not enter a temptation. Twice he had said this to them, and here they are entering into temptation, doing the very thing that he had said not to do. Giving into the darkness, acting impulsively, Again, apart from the obvious lesson, I hope you caught it on prayer, that we see again that, that prayer is the preparation. The surrender to God's will is the preparation for these kinds of encounters with evil. But beyond that, to think of this impulsiveness specifically. We're, we're in such a rush today. nothing nothing good will come of our hurried and harried lives the darkness relishes the pace of life that most christians keep up because it gives us no room for reflection it gives us no room to hear from god no room to pray no room to truly study the scriptures no room to meditate on them no room to fast We leave ourselves susceptible to the darkness. We leave ourselves susceptible to asking God questions that we don't wait long enough to hear an answer to. And then we start swinging our sword wildly as if we're accomplishing the will of God. Hacking and slashing our way through circumstances we're facing. Instead, here's what characterizes the follower of Christ. Ready for these two verses? Psalm 46.10. Be still. It's so hard to know God unless we're still. Be still and know that I am God. Stop with your hurry. Stop with your harriedness. Pause, reflect, consider, read, meditate on. Think about God. Those who wait, those who wait for the Lord. We're rushing ahead of Him. We're asking the questions and then running through without getting the answers. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. We'll be able to stand at peace and and confident and resolved before any circumstances that come our way and any evil that would assault us. I feel like we've gotten so much already, right? Just in the first few verses. I got more. It's okay. Let's keep moving. We're seeking to identify the power of darkness. It disguises itself as good. It acts impulsively. Notice this third. Darkness explains away the miraculous. Darkness explains away the miraculous. So, so the servant's ear is, you know, when we, when we last left the servant, his, his ear was laying on the ground. His, his right ear has been lopped off, no doubt blood flowing. I remember once I went for um, a haircut. I, w- I was in my 20s. It was before I came to Barry, just so no one here thinks it happened here in town. And, and the stylist just clipped, just clipped the very top of my ear. And it bled and bled and bled and bled and just how many people don't like blood? It bled and bled and and bled and I mean we couldn't stop it from bleeding. It just kept bleeding. So much blood. You get in the picture, it was, it was like there was a lot of blood. Now imagine this servant, his whole ear has come off. I mean, as soon as we get a cut, one of the first things we do, if we get any kind of injury, we just go like this, correct? You just cover it. So I can imagine he's just here like this, feeling the spot, just blood pouring down and, and seeing his ear on the ground and holding the spot where his ear used to be, thinking, now every selfie I take has to be from the left side. <laughs> I don't even know how you recover from that. (laughs) Verse 51, but Jesus said no more of this. He's responding to what Peter has just done. Stop it. This isn't about fighting. It's it's not a violent revolution. No governments are being overthrown. The, The kingdom of God, yes, is coming in power and in authority, but in a way you obviously do not understand to prove the nature of the kingdom we start to think about the nature of the kingdom of god the words that we think of are love and mercy and grace and forgiveness and sacrifice these are the words that describe the kingdom of god in luke chapter 6 in fact it's it's the kingdom of god is love your enemies not lop their ear off The kingdom of God is, Luke 6, 31, as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. Do you wish that they would lop off your right ear? No, then don't lop off their right ear. So Jesus, to prove, to prove the nature of the kingdom of God, that it's not about swords and violent overthrow, to prove it, he touched his ear and healed him. Jesus does a miracle for one of the ones who came to arrest him. And he exemplifies what the the upside down radical nature of the kingdom of God is really all about. Eric Metaxas wrote this in his book on miracles. If miracles exist at all, they exist not for their own sake, but for us. To point us towards something beyond to someone beyond. The miracle is not there primarily so that the guy has an ear back. It's not just for the sake of, oh wow, a miracle was done. It's to point to Jesus. It's to point to the kingdom. The religious leaders don't even seem to notice. The action just goes on. It's remarkable to read. How uneventful this miracle actually is. How, 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 how it didn't even move the needle in terms of impact on anyone there. No time whatsoever is given to any, any, any reaction. You know, there's times in the scripture where something happens and you'll see the reaction. And the people were astonished. Nobody is astonished. It's like no one even noticed. They explained it away in their hearts and in their minds. They were so resolved to arrest him and stop him that they dismissed the miracle without even considering it. And here's what I would say about us. Let's, let's bring that in, into this room right now. Because I think we have an uneasy relationship with miracles because we live in this super rational Western world. So that even if we would say in this room, I believe in miracles, I believe God did uh, this list of things, all these things we see in the scriptures, I believe all of that, we don't really like to talk about it. We, we barely like to talk about it with each other, knowing that, that everybody in this room perhaps believes in these miracles. We certainly don't want to talk about it very much outside these walls. So we have this uneasy relationship with the miraculous. And we don't mind even talking about the miracles that happened in biblical times. We're reticent to believe that miracles might happen today. That they're happening now. And I'm not talking about the crazy faith healer nonsense. But the everyday miracles that God is doing. And the once in a while miracles that God does by breaking the natural laws that he created Anyway. I mean, if we believe in Jesus, we believe in miracles. I didn't even get like a head nod to that. If we believe in Jesus, we believe in miracles. That's part of the package. We can start with the creation. The miracle of the creation. We're not science deniers as people would accuse us of. That's just a means of, of making the argument something that we can't respond to. But we can respond to that. We see that the laws of nature were inaugurated by our creator. That the laws of physics and astronomy and geology, that these all point to a designer. They point to a creator. To look at a strand of DNA. To unravel it and see that someone had to make this. That science points, design points to a designer. And we know that the designer is Christ. That's a miracle. That it's holding together, that it is what it is. We could talk about the virgin birth. We could talk about the resurrection. These are mind boggling miracles that suspended the laws of nature. We can work out from there to how the Holy Spirit saves. Every salvation a miracle, every restored marriage a miracle, every addiction overcome a miracle. Let's not lose sight of these things. But let's see, even as we talk about the darkness here, let's see what John 1.5 says. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Don't, don't explain away the miraculous. Don't, don't ignore the miraculous. And that kind of makes the next point, in fact. Darkness operates in the shadows. It has to, otherwise the light would chase it away. Verse 52 now, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? He goes on in verse 53, the first part to say, When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. He's calling out their fear. No surprise that they've come at night. I've heard uh, Pastor Roger say so many times, I think I got this right, Roger, nothing good happens after midnight. Something like that? Nothing good happens after midnight. Darkness is the cover for so much sin. And Jesus is making the point that the religious leaders could have arrested him at any time. He was right there in the temple. That was their home base. They could have seized him right in that moment. And we know, of course, that they, verse 2 actually of chapter 22 tells us they feared the people. Popular opinion was against their plan. I love what uh, this one commentary said. I I couldn't better this, so I'll just read it for you. There is beautiful irony here. They could have taken him any time they wanted if they had not feared the people. In point of fact, they were the lawless ones. And his challenge questioned the legality of his arrest. They came under the cloak of night like armed robbers, their conduct an implicit admission that they were outside the realm of justice. And Jesus' question undressed his captors, exposing their naked guilt. Darkness operates in the shadows some of you, I don't need to convince you of this because you're sitting here today and um, you've put it on for this morning, but you have a secret sin. Something you engage in away from the light of the gospel. Away from God's people, away from perhaps your spouse or your children or your parents. Something you engage in far from your small group and your friends. It is indulged at night or while you're on the road or while you're away from home and unaccountable. You engage it at the office or using a private browser. It is perhaps an adulterous relationship and that could be a real one or an imagined one. It is the consumption of alcohol or drugs consumed away from view. It is money stashed away It is business deals done under the table. And whatever it happens to be, God loves you. He offers you Himself if you would repent. Because 1 Corinthians 4-5 tells us that the Lord will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. And will disclose the purposes of the heart. That could be a good thing. If you're living for the Lord, but it can also bring judgment and discipline on those who are for themselves, are consumed by darkness, and are not for Christ. A lot to think about in just that one point. Finally, this. In order for the light to shine, darkness must have its day. Darkness must have its it's our. You see what Jesus says. He gives the reason why they, the reason why they couldn't see the miracle. The, the reason why they had actually come at night. Verse 53, right at the end, he says, But this is your hour. This is it for you. And the power of darkness. And we are moving here toward the climax of the divine human relationship in history. We're moving towards that moment when the very first promise of redemption in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 would be fulfilled when the serpent's head is going to be crushed. We're heading toward that moment where humankind will be redeemed from the curse of sin, when we'll be relieved of the surrounding darkness, when the sting of death will be no more. When Satan and his demons will put all that they have into the condemnation of Jesus, into His beating, into the shame that would be heaped upon Him. Satan and his demons will put all they have into Him being killed. They will wreak havoc on this small band of followers. They will pour out grief and pain on all. And while they do, with Jesus hanging on the cross... There would be, as chapter 23 will describe, darkness over the whole land. Darkness would have its day. But I was reminded right at the very beginning of Luke's gospel, in chapter 1, after the birth narrative, you'll remember the man Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. When told that his aged wife would become pregnant... That they would have a son who would be a herald, a prophet, a forerunner to Jesus. He didn't believe. He asked a, a faithless question. God rendered him mute right in that moment. He wouldn't be allowed to speak again until John was born and was at the dedication and his name was about to be given to him. And in that moment, his tongue was loosed and he spoke a prophecy. And in that prophecy, this is what he said Luke 1 78 and 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Who's the sunrise? Who is it? It's a Sunday school answer. Who's the sunrise? Jesus, there was never a time when God was not in control and you get that when you read the entirety of the scriptures and you see all the prophecies and how God knew this was all going to unfold, that there would be a sunrise that came on the other side of the darkness. There's never a time that God wasn't in control. The misguided Judas and the religious leaders, Luke 11 described them even back then as being full of darkness. We're making decisions to rid themselves of Jesus and to ret- return their world to what they consider to be the status quo and the normal. Satan somehow believes that this is his opportune time to once again make an attempt to gain dominance over God. And they were all wrong. But in this hour, they were allowed to revel in their darkness God was about to break through in power. The prophet Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, said this in Malachi 4.2, For you who fear my name, the sun, the Son of righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. Zechariah spoke of the sunrise. Malachi of the Son of righteousness. And that's the hope that we have. The darkness will not overcome us. The Son of Righteousness will rise and heal us. Now I want to leave that verse up on the screen and, and I, I want to ask you a question as you pause on this verse, as we just be still, as we wait on the Lord in this moment. There's, there's no rush for us to get out of here. because It's going to be so hard to think about this message and these words. Once those doors open and the music stops and we head out into a loud lobby and out into our lives, it's just going to be so hard to think about this again. So this is the moment. Consider the verse. For you who fear my name. Do you fear, honor, reverence the name of Jesus Christ? That's true for you. The Son of Righteousness will rise in your life with healing in His wings, pushing back the darkness, the power of darkness in your life, in your family, your marriage. Are you allowing the Son of Righteousness, Jesus Christ, to bring the light of the gospel into your life to heal and transform you?